While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. My father enjoys cycling. And uh, when I was a teenager, he roped me into his favorite pastime. He'd wake me up early on a Saturday morning, much earlier than I wanted to be awake, and we'd hit the road for a 30 or 50 mile bike ride. He, he loved cycling for its own sake. It was all about the ride for him. But, you know, especially as a teenager, for me, the enjoyment wasn't so much in the ride. It was in squeezing even just the littlest bit of competition from it. I'm a very competitive person. So, it, you know, trying to keep up with Dad, especially when I was younger, trying to keep up with Dad, trying to be faster than Dad, trying to be faster than Dad's friends. Uh, and what would really motivate me, especially as I'm trying to climb up this, you know, huge hill or something like that, was imagining myself becoming like, the greatest cyclist of the world. <laughs> Particularly like becoming like Lance Armstrong. Um, now, when Armstrong was at the height of his powers, I would plop myself down in front of the TV to watch the Tour de France. Truth be told, cycling isn't exactly made for television. There, yeah, I know. Most of you are like, why would you even ever watch that? There, there are vast periods of time in which almost nothing is happening. But Lance made it interesting for me, especially as he kept winning and winning. And I could pretend that I knew something of what they were doing because I went cycling too. He won the tour seven times, an American hero. And I remember, especially when I was around like 17 or 18, you know, there's rumors circulating like, oh, he took drugs and stuff. But I remember defending him at every turn, so certain that he was the real deal. I was crushed when I learned that he was, I was wrong. Um, he used performance-enhancing drugs for all of his victories. It was all fool's gold. And honestly, it robbed the tour of much of its magic for me. I don't sit down and watch the Tour de France anymore. Who's got time for that? <laughs> of course, though, Lance wasn't the only one who was cheating. Almost all of the top contenders during his time were doping. And what they would all say is that 
you couldn't win if you didn't dope because everyone else was doing it. But of course, winning in that way hollowed their victories. They didn't win the right way. Lance's seven wins were all stripped from the record books, and now he's only known as a cheater. There's a right way to win, and there is a wrong way to win. And in fact, the wrong way isn't winning at all. It's just a phony victory. So with this in mind, let's now look at Jesus and his disciples. From the start of his ministry, Jesus has been proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom. The Jewish people have been caught in a real losing streak since they fell under Roman rule. Jesus is now saying that he will bring them victory. Now, anyone could say this, but Jesus proves it by all the miracles that he performs, making the lame walk, the blind see, even raising dead people back to life. He even claims that he can forgive sins. This all seems to be building towards a climactic outcome to the Jewish mind, the removal of Roman power and the establishment of David's throne once and for all. So naturally, when Jesus instead says that he is going to die, that he's going to be betrayed, it just does not compute with his disciples. Jesus doesn't seem to know the first thing about winning. You don't win by dying. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56, tells us about the critical meltdown that occurs among Jesus' disciples when they see that he's going to be arrested. Now, you'll recall earlier in this chapter um, that Matthew records about the path that Judas took towards betraying Jesus. He went to the Jewish elders, the high priests, and said, hey, I can deliver Jesus to you at a price. And they said, okay, here's 30 pieces of silver. And he says, you got a deal. And then uh, at the Last Supper, Judas was at the table with the rest of the disciples and Jesus. And Jesus says that one of you is going to betray me. And uh, not too subtly, but he kind of, he looks at Judas and, he's, and Judas is like, you're not talking about me, right? And he's like, well, uh, yeah, basically, <laughs> I'm talking about you. Um, and so now we're seeing how this is really coming to a head, where the, the rubber is meeting the road. And we find Judas um, leading a large crowd with him to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're asking, well, how did he know where Jesus was if he wasn't with them? Well, um, I didn't mention this last week, but the Garden of Gethsemane was probably a place that Jesus and his disciples frequented. Um, I don't know if you... I love nature. I remember as, as a teenager growing up, I always had this spot out in the woods. I love to go and pray. Maybe you have places in your own life where you like to go and pray. Well, this garden out on the Mount of Olives where, where Jesus loved to go pray with his disciples just to kind of get away from the hustle and bustle. And so Judas knew that's where they were going to be. Now we wonder, you know, how big was this crowd? Um, who was in the crowd? Um, we get a little bit more details in the Gospel of John. In John 18, 3, um, 
John records, So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So it sounds like we kind of have a mixed crowd here of the personal guards of the high priests, but also um, possibly a detachment of Roman soldiers from the local garrison. And uh, it's suggested that the language that's being used here um, for detachment, which is spirit, means cohort, um, that that, the, that term generally refers to an amount of like 600 soldiers, which, you know, it doesn't say 600 soldiers, so we don't know that for certain, but basically what's being indicated here is that it was a lot of people to come out and arrest Jesus, a lot more than maybe you would figure. Um, and that's going to earn a, a comment from Jesus later on. Um, now, so Judas is leading this huge group of, of soldiers carrying swords, clubs. They're there to get Jesus. Perhaps they had heard about you know, his miraculous empower, powers and everything, and so that's why they have such a huge amount of uh, force present. Um, and Judas had arranged with them beforehand the signal that he was going to give to indicate which one of them is Jesus. Because apparently, you know, Jesus wasn't known to everybody in terms of his face. It's tough for us to imagine that with television and social media and stuff. You know, you have people that are famous. We all know their faces. Um, much easier in that time for people to know a name but not a face. Um, and so he goes up to Jesus, and the signal that he gives to the others to indicate that this is Jesus is he gives him a kiss. And maybe that seems a little weird to us because um, that's not typically how guys would greet each other you know, in America by giving each other a kiss on the cheek. Um, but we know that's a traditional way of, of, of greeting. You see that over in France and certainly true in other places in the world. And it, that was the case here. And, and so it's a, a very twisted way of betraying Jesus. And Jesus um, calls out Judas on this. Um, in Luke 22, verses 47 through 48, um, Luke records, While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, why are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? By kissing Jesus, what Judas is really doing is making kind of a mockery of Jesus. And we see this in verse 49 uh, here in Matthew, where he says, Greetings, rabbi, as though he really has respect for Jesus. It's kind of almost you can imagine him, him saying to Jesus, why isn't it a nice evening, rabbi? Fancy meeting you here. Um, and Jesus kind of returns the compliment, it seems, in verse 50. He says, do what you came for, friend. And I think you kind of have to have that little bit of turn on it, friend. Like he's not he understands exactly what Judas is doing here, and he's kind of pointing it out like, you know, you're kissing me, but you're obviously not my, my friend. Um, and there's also some prophetic uh, significance here as well that um, we'll pick up on as we, as we go on. I think that's another reason why he calls him friend. Um, now, if, if you were one of the disciples here, what would you do? as you see all this playing out. This low life has just betrayed your friend 
in a disgusting fashion. And he is more than a friend to you. You believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised King. I don't know about you, but I'd want to lash out. And that's exactly what we see one of the disciples do. Turning to verses 51 through 54, we see that Matthew says that one of Jesus' companions cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now, this is one of these things where you kind of wonder, like, why didn't Matthew just tell us who this person is? Why was it just so generalized? And it's, it's tough to know, but John gives us the answer, because we want to know the answer. Which one of them decided to pick up a sword and, and cut off a guy's ear? You go to the Gospel of John, John 18, 8 through 10, and we see there that Jesus is trying to protect his disciples. Hey, just arrest me. Don't bother with these guys. Um, and then in verse 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So we have the whole picture here in John. You have Peter cutting off this guy's, Malchus's ear off. Now, is this surprising that it's Peter? I mean, if you're going to pick out, of all the disciples, who's going to pick up a sword and cut off a guy's ear? You're probably thinking it's Peter. My only other guess would have been Simon the Zealot, because Zealot means someone that was kind of for overthrowing the Roman government. So I'd say either Simon the Zealot or, or Peter. Um, so it's not surprising. We know that Peter has a tendency towards being impulsive. He's kind of the first one to step out. You think about when Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee, and Peter's like, hey, let me come out to see you. Um, most guys aren't doing that. They're like, oh, I'll stay in the boat, not Peter. Um, and so here, what he's trying to do is, you know, he's trying to prove his loyalty to Jesus. I'm going to stick with Jesus through thick and thin. Um, now, And what we also see here is that, in fact, that all of them had the kind of this sense of, of wanting to strike out. Um, but Peter was the only one to actually act out. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 22, verses 49 through 51, we see this. And it tells us what happens to Malchus, because Matthew doesn't bother with sharing those details here. And that's something to important note with the Gospel writers. Each one of them doesn't tell you all the details. That's why we have four Gospels. They all complement each other. So verses 49 through 51 in Luke 22, it says, When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? So all of them were ready to go to arms. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. So that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. These guys are coming to arrest Jesus. And he still cares and loves enough to heal this guy's ear. Now, maybe the whole notion that the disciples are carrying swords seems surprising, because we don't really imagine them carrying swords. Um, and so it might come to, it might be a surprise to a lot of us here that um, it seems like Jesus told them to bring swords. Now, we'll see why that's not actually the case, but we can understand how they took him literally, when he did not intend them to take him literally. In Luke 22, verses 35 through 38, um, Jesus asked his, his disciples, he said, When I sent you without purse, 
bag or sandals? Did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He's talking about when he sent them on their first mission out to the countryside to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. And in verse 36, he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled to me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. And that's enough, he replied. Um, now, I added that little intonation there on that's enough because that's the way that we should really understand Jesus' response here. Because in what world is two swords enough to deal with what's coming at Jesus? We just said you have a group of about 600 soldiers coming. Two swords is not enough to fend off those guys. What Jesus is saying here and talking about exchanging, uh, you know, taking up a purse and uh, selling your cloak and buying a sword instead, what Jesus is doing is using this imagery to indicate that conflict is coming. And conflict is coming. But the disciples took Jesus literally here. And when it became clear to him, when they were like, okay, well, here's some swords, is that enough? That he was like, that's enough. Like, you're totally missing the point here. Um, but apparently, Peter's like, well, I kind of think I should keep the sword. <laughs> and apparently he kept it with him. Um, and so this is why Jesus scolds Peter in verse 52. He says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So Jesus seems to be telling Peter here that the sword is not the way, because if you take up the way of the sword, it just results in more violence. It leads to no productive end. And we see throughout the scriptures um, in the Old Testament, words against bloodshed. Now, that comes with a caveat, because we obviously also see lots of sanctioned violence. We see God bringing punishment upon um, the people of Israel, using Israel to bring punishment upon others. Um, and so we understand that God can, God can use war to bring punishment upon a people, but we understand that war in itself is not a good thing. Um, and that war is something that ought to pass away. And so when we see these scriptures here talking about you know, being against bloodshed, what it's saying is that in the ideal, in the world that ought to be, these things should not be. And so we should live in accordance with that as, as the rule. Um, and so in Genesis 9-6, after Noah and his family survived the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah, and he says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. The idea being there, like, God allows Noah and his family to kill animals because animals are not made in the image of God. Animals can be had for food. But what sets human, human persons apart and what gives them their dignity is that they are made in the image of God. Our dignity isn't from our intellectual abilities or our physical abilities or anything like that. And the world likes to pin human dignity on, on whatever abilities you have. It doesn't matter what ha abilities that you have. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. Every human being is made in the image of God and has that dignity. And so we should protect every human life. We see also in the prophet Ezekiel, um, God condemning Edom 
Um, and he says this, Edom, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will give you over to bloodshed and will pursue you. So that's a punishment. They, they suffer bloodshed. Since you did not hate bloodshed, bloodshed will pursue you. And he's talking about how they kind of rejoiced when Israel um, was, was experiencing bloodshed themselves and saying, oh yeah, right on. Um, and so that, the way that he's condemning there, Edom there is a lesson here for us is that all of us should hate bloodshed. None of us should pursue it. And this has some practical examples when we think about our own world. Like, do countries, do governments have a right to protect themselves? Sure. Um, but they ought not to seek out war. And so like, when we think about the situation with Russian, Russia and Ukraine, terrible situation. Um, Ukraine has a right to defend itself. Russia was the aggressor. Don't want to get too far into politics, but just looking at that situation, governments have a right to defend themselves. Um, and we see this um, taught by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 4, um, talking about governmental authority, not just in international affairs, um, but in internal affairs, domestic affairs. He says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath that bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So there is a sanctioned way in which the sword is carried, and that is by the government. Paul tells us that government is God's servant. So when we shift over here to the issue with the disciples is that they carry the sword, they're bearing the sword, and they're not authorized to do so because their authorization doesn't come from the Roman Empire, doesn't come from the religious leaders, and it does not come from the kingdom of God. And that's what they're really members of if they're following after Jesus. And what Jesus is telling them is that the way of God's kingdom is not bearing the sword. Um, and besides that, they're really missing the point of everything that's occurring. Um, the disciples don't understand that they're not going to win by using the sword. Now we see this same kind of confusion kind of later on. I, I love church history. I, I just went through the youth with, with them on this. Um, when you get to around like 600 AD, you know, Christianity has been spreading across Europe. Um, and you have this guy, King Clovis. Um, he was the king of the Franks. He used to be a pagan tribe. Um, becomes Christian, ends up leading to um, King Charlemagne, probably the greatest king in European history. Um, when he's converted, when he hears about the story about Jesus being crucified, he says, if I had been there with my Franks, I would have revenged his wrongs. And you, you're kind of sympathetic to, to you know, the sentiment there, but you're kind of like, Clovis, you're missing the whole point here. <laughs> um, but this is kind of symbolic of a temptation that has existed from, for the church um, for millennia. Um, the temptation to abandon the way of the cross for the way of the sword. And so it's no surprise that you know, about 500 years after this, you have the Crusades and saying, yes, carry the sword for Jesus and you know, go to the Holy Land. Um, now, you know, and saying like this isn't the right mindset to have. We're not speaking against you know seeking good moral government. The church should always 
be supportive of that and encourage all of that. Um, but when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we have to recognize that the kingdom of God does not depend on political fortunes. Um, it doesn't depend on whoever's in power. It will stand and allow those things. Um, and Jesus makes this pretty clear later on when he's standing before Pilate. In John 18, 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is from another place. He's not saying that my kingdom isn't real. He's just saying his kingdom is from another place. Now I have to say that many American Christians don't act like their kingdom is from another place. A lot of times I think we can act like the kingdom of God depends on our political fortunes. And I think if you, you know, went to uh, Christians in China or in North Korea, if you could find the ones in North Korea, because they have to be very secretive, um, I think they would laugh and probably cry at such a notion. Um, God help us if you know, our hope is and whatever political regime is in power. The hope of Christians across this world and across time has always been fixed in the knowledge that we're going to win. And so we have to ask the question, don't you know you're going to win? Why are you putting all your hopes on this? Our victory has been secured through the cross. And one of my favorite quotes, you know, not too many Avon Christians are, are quotable. We don't have like a very prominent history, but um, one of my favorite quotes comes from this guy, um, Albert Johnson, A.C. Johnson. Um, he lived in the beginning of, of the 20th century. And he says this. He says, We do not place our hope on what man can do for mankind or on what the church, civilization, or social service can do for the world but only upon what Christ can and will do for the race by and following his second coming. Success to every worthy effort for world betterment. But above and beyond all this, we wait for the day of Christ, the day of redemption, of resurrection, and restoration. I think he strikes the perfect balance there. Yes, to world betterment. Like, don't be apathetic about this world. But don't, don't, don't fix your hope on the current events of this world. Now, you know, as, as the disciples are seeing all of this play out with Jesus being arrested, you can imagine that they, they might start beginning to question whether Jesus has any real power here. And, and Jesus addresses that concern straight away. What's going on here is not a question of power, but of method. And so he tells the disciples, hey, I could call down 12 legions of angels. And a legion is about a thousand soldiers. So he's talking about 12,000 angels. And you, you see the 12 there. He's, he's basically saying, one for, a thousand for me and a thousand for each one of you. I could call down all this power. And there is a heavenly army. We, we, we hear a testimony to this in Second Kings um, when the king of Aram was coming up against Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 6, verses 15 through 17, uh, you have the prophet Elisha here. 
um, he had his servant um, whom he was working with. And he says, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so the heavenly army is real. And in fact, um, in Luke's gospel, we see how just before this, Jesus was actually ministered to by an angel. In Luke twenty-two forty-three, as Jesus is in anguish about the approaching prospect of the cross, Luke says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. So even in that immediate situation, Jesus has just had interaction with an angel. He knows what he's capable of. Um, but he doesn't call down the forces. Instead, he says, Peter, put aside your sword. Um, I could do much better than what you're going to try to do. Now, I think sometimes when we, we hear Jesus tell Peter to put the sword away, maybe we can think of Jesus being like, now, Peter, play nice. Like, don't be, you know, don't, don't be mean here. But that's, that's not what he's doing. Because a sword will come. It's just that now is not the time. The sword is coming. We see this in Revelation 19 through 21. Um, and it speaks of a rider here, and that rider is Jesus. Um, it says, Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider and the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now, you know, do we have to say that the sword coming out of the mouth is a literal sword? No. But it's a, the sword is symbolic of something, and it's judgment. There is a coming judgment. In the first coming of Christ, he's come to bring us salvation, but... In the second coming, he will bring punishment upon the wicked. But we live in the meantime. We live in the in-between of the two advents, his first coming and his second coming. And so Paul tells us in Romans 12, 19 through 21, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now what Paul is telling us here matches up exactly with what Jesus has been telling his disciples here in Matthew. You remember Matthew 16, 24. He tells them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We haven't, well, Jesus hasn't come to, to raise up an army to collect swords and spears, or in this day, aerial 15s, or any other type of weaponry. He's called us to come after him and follow a cross. And this really explains why in the first three centuries of the church, Christians altogether reject the sword. Um, and if you came to my seminar last month, you will remember 
Everything we talked about that all the Christians suffered, they fed them to wild animals. They burned them in iron chairs, set them in a chair and roasted them, basically, and crucified them and did all kinds of terrible things that any red-blood American would say, okay, we're going to start a revolution and overthrow this government. That's not what the Christians do. Even though, especially you know, a couple hundred years on, they really do have the power to give the Roman Empire fits if they decide to do so. But they don't do that. Because they believe that is not the way of the kingdom of God. That is not the way of Jesus Christ. The state bears the power of the sword. The church does not. That's true today as well. Now, when we think about our, you know, our personal defense, you know, do we have a, a basic right, a natural right, you know, to pre- protect ourselves from being killed? Yes. But it also seems that when you're suffering and you're dying for the faith, you don't have a right to blow the other guy's head off. We don't see that. The first 300 years of the church was like, why, did, why do we get a pass when they did not get a pass? So we can't deny the, the natural right that people have to defend themselves. At the same time, as Christians, our voice should be, avoid violence at all costs. Especially Lethal violence. The Christian should not have the attitude that, you know, if someone comes against me, if someone breaks into my house, my first thought is, I want to blow this guy away. If you're going to avoid that at all costs, you should do that. Even if it means running away. Flee before fight. Because we've been called to love our enemies. We have not been called to the way of the sword. And, th- and this is just simply aligning ourselves with the purpose of Christ. Christ came to save the world, not to destroy it, not to destroy sinners. In John 3.17, says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So when, when Jesus is saying that all of this has to happen, I have to be arrested, I'm going to the cross, he's just reminding his disciples that this is the way. This is what it means to follow after me. And all of this is taking place to fulfill prophecy. And we see that this has been a constant theme throughout Matthew, that he's always pointing back that this is fulfilling prophecy. This is fulfilling prophecy. From the very beginning, Matthew 1.22, he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord God had said through the prophet. So in this very moment, what's going on is that What's being fulfilled is the prophecy that one of Jesus' closest, one of his disciples is going to betray him. Um, That was commented on in Acts 1, where Peter says, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. And what he's referring to there is Psalm 41, 9 through 11. Where it says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. But it's interesting. You have both the, the willingness to suffer this betrayal, but you also see that there is a judgment that is coming. Raise me up so that I may pay, repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. So we have this anticipation that, yes, Christ is going to be raised from the dead and there will be a day when he returns again. But for now, 
All this is taking place in accordance with the design and plans of God, that he must suffer this. And we will suffer much, too, in following after Jesus. This is why in, Rome, in Revelation 6.10, we hear the saints depicted here as crying under the altar. These are Christians who have died for the faith. And they're crying out to God saying, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And God responds to them not by saying, Oh, that's not going to happen. I'm going to be nice to these folk. He just says, Not yet. Not yet. There's a day of judgment that's coming. For now, we do have to endure suffering, just as Christ did. This was the path that Jesus was destined to walk, and it's a road that leads to the cross. And yet, he had done nothing to deserve this betrayal. And all the soldiers and weapons that were marshaled to facilitate his arrest. Jesus wasn't going around the countryside, passing out swords, preparing for, for revolution. And so he picks up on this in verse 55. He says, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? And he says, You know, you had all these kinds of opportunities to arrest me. I was in the temple, unarmed. Wasn't doing it. You know, you could have gotten me, but you didn't. They're coming up against Jesus like he's Osama bin Laden, like he's a, a terrorist. And even this fact is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because you, you might remember in Isaiah 53, it says that the suffering servant, this Messiah, would be numbered with the transgressors. They would view him as someone that had done something really wrong. In Isaiah 50, 50, verses 5 through 9, we see something even more that aligns with this. In Isaiah 50, 50, verse 5, it says, The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking, spitting, because the Sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint. And I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. He was my accuser. Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. So even the fact that Jesus is being arrested without cause is fulfilling everything that's been foretold. And remember, this is this is stuff that's been foretold like 500 years prior. When you read the prophet Isaiah, it looks like you're reading from the New Testament. And Jesus just so happens to match it perfectly. How does that just happen? We also see here that the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, telling them that they would betray him, is, is also fulfilled. You remember earlier in Matthew 26 that on that, he said to them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's what we see happen. They desert him. They flee. And it's because the disciples didn't want to win Jesus' way. They couldn't see how anyone could win Jesus' way. Accepting betrayal, not resisting arrest, 
putting yourself into the hands of the people who planned to kill you. They couldn't see how he could win through the cross. They only knew the sword. And they believed that that was the only way that you could win. Pick up the sword. All the top contenders were doing it. Herod, the Romans, the Jewish rebels. Everyone except Jesus. They couldn't imagine how God's kingdom might be different than the kingdoms and governments of this world. Every one of them wears out. They pass away, only to be replaced by another. The sword turns again and again. Its work is never done. Its power is never enough to establish a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Eventually, every winner is a loser. Now, Jesus has all the marks of a loser by the world's estimation. But he's losing nothing because no one is taking anything from him. He gave himself to them. That's what we see here, clearly. Jesus gives himself to them. He does this in order to obtain a victory that will never be stripped away from him. Jesus does not win to only one day lose. He overthrows the judgment of the government authorities in his resurrection. They say, we're condemning you to death. He says, nice try. (laughs) I'm back. He will destroy death from the inside, leaving the power of sin in the grave. And so the question for us is this. Will we flee or will we follow him? That That question confronts each one of us. Because the way of Jesus does lead to a cross. You can't carry your sword there. As A.C. Johnson says, all the best of bettering the world in our time, but if you're following Jesus, you've abandoned the conspiracies of worldly power. We already have our winner. King Jesus is on the throne. He is on the throne when things are great in America. He is on the throne when Perversions are rampant when violence is celebrated and it seems like our kids and grandkids have dismal prospects ahead of them. Whatever future you pronosticate, Jesus is on the throne. The Roman Empire lasted 1,000 years. But Jesus outlasted her. Our nation has been around a mere 247 years. But Jesus will outlast her, whether when she falls or when he returns. You and I live for only for a moment, a mere flicker as time rolls on and the histories are written. What will you give your life to? Jesus gave his life for the kingdom that will stand forever. A brief moment of suffering for everlasting glory. And because of what he did, this can be ours too. But we must go with him. We go to the cross or reveal that our faith is in our swords. That our faith is in us carving out some bit of paradise now. A mere day trip against eternity. A feeble hope that could come to nothing after all our struggle and strife. 
It's easy to have the confidence of Peter, but flee when things stop going our way. So do this. Surrender your way to God's way. Surrender yourself to where he, he has placed you for this time and place in history. Surrender the wide path for the narrow path of Christ that takes you across the rocky terrain. Follow Him. Stay with Him. Even unto death. This is the winner's way. Because Jesus Christ has overcome. And our champion will never be toppled. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. Because in all our planning, Father, we would try to establish the kingdom of God by swords, by tanks, by missiles, by just more violence, Father. But in your wisdom, Father, you've made a way to bring an end to the violence so that war will pass away, so that the swords will be beaten into plowshares, Father. This is what Christ has done. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for your faithfulness, for being obedient even unto death. And so, Father, our prayer this morning is that just as Christ took up the cross rather than the sword, that we would do likewise. Both literally, Father, by not resorting to violence, but also just, Father, by not putting our confidence in the political machinations of this world, Father. The strategy for power that this world presents. Father, fix our faith in Jesus Christ and His victory which is secure and His power and the heavenly army that stands by His side and which will come one day. Help us to put our faith in Him and stand strong against the temptations that this world present to take up the sword and strike. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.